Hello, hello. Welcome back to Uplift Fit Nutrition Radio, y'all. Today, I am so beyond excited because Andrea Hardy, the gut guru, she is Canadian gut health dietitian, is here, and we are going to get nitty-gritty on some gut and digestion-related topics here. So, Andrea, thank you so much for coming on my podcast, taking the time out of your day to talk with me and my listeners. Can you tell us all about you, your story, and what made you so passionate about that? Thank you for having me. So like you mentioned, I am a registered dietitian that specializes in digestive disorders. And the reason I became so passionate about digestive disorders is one, partially, as you know, as a dietitian, no matter what area of practice you work in, the gut plays such a significant role. So I worked in liver disease and transplant. I worked in the ICU and I worked in oncology predominantly. And every single one of those things, patients really did need help with their gut and with their digestion. And when I had an opportunity to start a private practice, I really wanted to pull in that digestive health element one from my previous background, but also because I myself have a digestive disorder. I have irritable bowel syndrome. And uh, as a dietitian with irritable bowel syndrome, when I was diagnosed, you know, 12-ish years ago, the doctor told me to drink more water and eat more fiber. And I was like, well, I'm a dietetic intern. I already do that. And so I really felt you know, kind of left out in the dark. I was a little bit embarrassed by my diagnosis. Uh, I really believed, you know, IBS is that that all in your head kind of condition at the time. And so like any good dietitian, I dove into the literature and I started doing a whole bunch of research on how uh, IBS occurs and how to manage irritable bowel syndrome. At the time, there was no low FODMAP publications when I first got diagnosed. And then, uh, over the first few years is when all that research started coming out. So I just stayed on top of it. And I had a lot of colleagues always coming to me to ask me questions about functional gut disorders, despite working in an entirely different space. I worked in oncology at the time. And so I knew when I started a private practice, I had so much to offer in terms of digestive health and specifically functional gut disorders, that that's really where I wanted to focus. I wanted to help reduce the stigma. I wanted to connect people to treatment sooner because at the time, the average time it took for patients to get a diagnosis and assistance with treatment was about six years, according to the literature. So people would really suffer for a long time without good solutions. And I knew I could definitely help to reduce that. And so uh, that is how I became so interested and so passionate about digestive health. That's amazing. Just a testimony for your own struggles, being able to help others. Now tell me, what does digestive health even mean in the first place? Yeah, so we used to think digestive health was the absence of structural disease. And so that would be things like absence of celiac disease, absence of uh, inflammatory bowel disease. And when we defined digestive health by that, we were missing this whole subset of patients that struggled with digestive issues, but maybe didn't necessarily fit into that structural disorder box. So they were left with the eat more fiber, drink more water, stress less, uh, you know, those kinds of 
really broad interventions that didn't leave those patients feel very supportive. And so we don't have a specific definition of digestive health, but I think some important factors to consider when defining it still include absence of structural disease or management of structural diseases like celiac, like IBD. Uh, but in addition, we have all of these other things. So uh, a sense of digestive wellness or comfort is really important. Uh, we know uh, our gut needs to properly digest and absorb things. So is there a malabsorption component going on, whether that's related to food intolerances or something otherwise? Uh, and then, of course, there's that element of the gut microbiome. So we don't have a definition of what is a healthy gut microbiome yet, uh, but we do know that the gut microbiome absolutely plays a role in maintaining our digestive health, maintaining our overall health, and potentially contributing to disease when uh, we're struggling with not feeling so well, whether that's digestion-wise or other disease-wise. Uh, gut barrier function, I'd say, is something that's being added to the list as well, is does our gut barrier work as it should, and does the immune system in our gut work as it should? And so as we start to gather more scientific information, I think uh, our, our uh, how we look at digestive health and how we define it is going to continue to grow and change, which I think is going to end up serving more patients in the long run. Because there's patients that just don't quite fit in any of those categories. And I think there's a lot still to learn. I absolutely love that. And it makes me question first, what does a healthy microbiome even look like for you? Yeah, absolutely. And the reality is we don't know yet. And that's because your gut microbiome's kind of like a fingerprint. It's unique to you. And so Lacey, you might have a very broad abundance of microbes. You might have a lot of diversity, meaning you have a ton of different microbes. And I might not have that same diversity, but the microbes that fill up my bacterial niches are able to perform the same functions as yours. And so it could be that we live, you know, you live somewhere in the US, I forget where. I live in Canada, so our environments are different. Um, how I was fed as an infant might have been different than how you were fed. Um, how I was fed throughout my life or different courses of antibiotics I took might have influenced my gut microbiome in a different way than yours has. And at the end of the day, we end up with very different microbiomes, but it doesn't necessarily mean that one is better than the other. And so when we come to actually defining what a healthy gut microbiome looks like, it's not just going to be about presence of microbes. It's going to be about function of microbes. And so presence can tell us a little bit. We know abundance appears to be a good thing. So having lots of microbes in our colon. Uh, and we know variety of microbes appears to be a good thing or that diversity aspect. But it's not consistent amongst all of the population. So we know when we look at a large sample of people, those are things that are associated with better health outcomes, but it's not guaranteed that if you have those things, you're going to have better health outcomes, or if you don't have those things, you're going to have worse health outcomes. Does that make sense? 100% makes sense. And I like to say, you know, trying to understand our gut microbiome is like trying to understand all the stars in the planet in our galaxy. 
there's mm-hmm. studies being conducted every single day and we really don't know what a healthy microbiome truly looks like. We've learned a lot, don't get me wrong, and we've established many correlations and causations, and we know what can influence a quote-unquote healthy microbiome and what constitutes, you know, in some overgrowth or infections, but we don't know what a beautiful, perfect gut microbiome looks like. So I'm so glad mm-hmm. you said Yeah, and I think what's really interesting is there's a good chance we're never going to totally figure it out because we have trillions of microbes in our gut. But research is doing a lot of really cool things to still be able to use that data. So um, isolating microbes from a healthy uh, gut microbiome and administering it, for example, in the treatment of IBD to patients that don't have an abundance of those microbes. Uh, Research is showing that that can put ulcerative colitis into remission when we choose the right microbes. And so through proper research, even though we don't have a definition of what a healthy gut microbiome is, scientists are still able to formulate uh, hypotheses based on the data and then provide uh, interventions by way of research to measure, does this really have an impact? And what's so cool about uh, microbe-based research is I'd say, you know, in terms of risk benefit, we're we're attempting to add microbes a lot of times that are already existing in the gut. We're just trying to promote the population of those microbes. So uh, from a safety perspective, um, we, we think that sometimes these interventions perhaps will have better safety profiles long term than, for example, um, uh, things like Humira or Remicade to manage IBD that has side effects. Right. So glad you mentioned that. I'm all about the lifestyle changes and the dietary modifications we can make to promote a healthy microbiome first. And of course, a nutrient dense diet. So let's talk about some of those things that people can do. So we're talking dietary modification, lifestyle regimens, um, supplementation, probiotics. Let's dive into these things. Let's first talk about, because I know everybody's going to ask me, what are the dietary modifications? What does it look like to eat for a best gut? Mm-hmm. So I did a really great podcast on actually comparing the literature of a variety of different types of diets. I think we looked, if I can remember correctly, at veganism and vegetarianism, uh, keto, <laughs> paleo, and a Mediterranean-style diet. And interestingly, uh, you know, at the end of the day, when we look at digestive health and going for that abundance and diversity and some of those microbes we know are beneficial to our health, what matters most is not necessarily the sexiest thing, but is super important, and that is fiber. And so fiber acts like fuel for your gut bacteria. It's not digested by us it makes its way through the digestive tract and then it feeds the microbes in our guts. And when those microbes are fed well, they're able to produce compounds that promote good gut barrier function. So one of those markers of digestive health, they're able to promote uh, abundance of certain types of microbes associated with better health. So again, that second piece of digestive health And research shows that a lot of times adding in these types of fibers can help to reduce inflammation, reduce the risk of structural disease in the gut. Um, And so 
really fiber is at the crux of managing what we would call digestive health and a healthy gut microbiome. And so in terms of the research, most of the research suggests hitting that 25 to 38 grams of fiber a day is a great place to start. And so what that looks like for a lot of people a lot of times is actually almost doubling the amount of fiber they currently eat because the average North American is only getting about 11 to 14 grams a day, which is just not enough fiber to keep those microbes fed. And so in terms of practicality and how we can do this, really it's all about getting back to basics. So if you're not sure how to work fiber into your diet or perhaps fiber causes digestive distress, work with a dietitian so that they can tease that out for you. But some easy basics are swapping uh, you know, our refined carbohydrates for whole grains and complex carbohydrates, which are gonna be sources of fiber getting in more fruits and veggies to try to get in at least three servings of fruit a day um, and aiming for about half of your plate of veggies at lunch and supper every day, including more plant-based protein. So this is an easy way to reduce our intake of meat and help to increase our intake of fiber and phytochemicals, all of which feed good microbes in our gut. And so that's including things like nuts and seeds, uh, pulses, uh, and then tofu is not a good source of fiber, but it's still a plant-based protein, or you could do the whole form in something like edamame, which is a great source of fiber. And so uh, using more of those plant-based uh, proteins can help to hit our fiber targets too. And so for some patients, because of digestive distress, uh, fiber supplements can help to bridge that gap. And then finding ones that feed the microbes, but don't feed them really rapidly uh, can be beneficial too. So sometimes fiber supplements can help to bridge that fiber gap if it really isn't realistic for you to meet it through diet. But we always want to do food first if we can. Yeah, food first because we're getting all the micronutrients that we need in the synergistic effect of those. Absolutely. And when it comes to that, there's actually research to show that fiber from whole foods uh, outperforms uh, fiber from refined supplements. And that's like exactly what you said is we're missing that synergistic effect. So the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. All the time we see that in nutrition. Whole foods always appear to outperform individual supplements in terms of uh, benefits on our health. And so if we can get it through food, that's the goal. If we can get it through an uh, unrefined uh, fiber supplement so that we're able to get in some of those phytochemicals and in additional micronutrients, if you're not able to consistently get in adequate fiber in your diet, that's going to be a great top up too. So we have two different types of fiber, right? So we have insoluble and soluble fiber, both which can play a different role in how our gut responds, right? So we have our insoluble fiber, which bulks up our stool and can alleviate if we have constipation. And then we have soluble fiber, which soaks up that water. I say soluble means slow and it can help with things like diarrhea. So I know people are asking, there's two different types of fiber. Okay, Andrea, which one do I choose? Do I choose a mix? What is best here? Yeah, absolutely. And so interestingly, there's a new article out just to kind of throw another wrench in things, hopefully not confuse people more. But 
We're also looking at classifying fiber by its solubility, like you mentioned, uh, in addition to its fermentability, as well as its viscosity. And so there's a whole bunch of different factors that influence how fiber it affects our guts. And so the big takeaway is for people is we want a mix of those fibers. So we don't necessarily, unless we're struggling with digestive symptoms and your dietitians provided specific modifications on the types of fiber, I tend to actually get people to focus more on the variety aspect rather than nitpicking, you know, how much soluble or insoluble fiber something has, because a lot of foods really have that combination. Let's take a pear, for example. The skin of the pear is gonna be insoluble, and the fleshy part of the pear is gonna be where that soluble fiber is found. And so most of our whole foods, you get that really nice mix. Uh, when it comes to variety, uh, I like to say your microbes are picky eaters. Different microbes like to snack on different fibers. And so when we get variety in the diet, when we get enough fiber in the diet, we're going to be feeding a wide variety of microbes. So if you eat the same thing day in and day out, especially of plant-based foods, maybe it's time to start thinking about ways in which you can uh, switch it up a bit and get in different plant-based foods to add in that variety. I like to say every time you eat is an opportunity to think about how you're feeding those microbes. And so if you're able to get in some of that variety, aiming for you know two or three different colors of plant-based foods on your plate at each meal, or trying to switch it up and instead of always choosing uh, peanut butter, for example, maybe you also include other types of nuts and seeds, or maybe you include different types of pulses. So maybe some days you have black beans and some days you have chickpeas and some days you have lentils. Each of those are gonna provide not only different types and um, amounts of fiber, but they're also gonna provide different micronutrients and different phytochemicals. And phytochemicals are just naturally occurring food chemicals that we don't digest, but our gut microbes can. And so can often have that prebiotic-like effect. 100% variety is king when it comes down to your day-to-day -day life. I like to say, because I'm a creature of habit, and I will stick to the same thing over and over and over again. I like to make every single day switch up one thing. I don't care what it is. It could be as simple as going from broccoli to cauliflower or going from oatmeal to quinoa. Switch up one thing makes it super easy. That's such a practical tip because a lot of times you'll see now that 30 different plant-based foods a week it sounds like a lot and it can be for a lot of people if we're really habitual eaters or if you're a meal prepper. Uh, my patients panic because they're like, well, I eat the same thing for a few days and then I switch it up. That's okay too. Uh, it's not just variety over the course of one week, it's really variety over the course of a long period of time. So right now in my cereal, in my oats in the morning, I'm putting walnuts. Maybe next week I'll put pepitas and that will be my one switch up. So that's such an easy tip. Absolutely love that. So we talked about prebiotics, we talked about fiber. Now let's dive into the beautiful live microorganisms of probiotics, because I know everybody's like, okay, which probiotic do I take and what is going to help my gut be the best ever? Absolutely. So probiotics are, uh, you know, a really exciting topic that people are really interested about. And what they are is live microbes when administered in adequate amounts, infer a benefit to our health. And 
the important thing about probiotics is that they're strain specific. So it really matters the type of microbes you're choosing right down to the strain. For example, I wouldn't go to the pharmacy with a headache and say, give me any drug. I have a headache. I would say, I need something for my headache, which drug at which dose works and for how long should I take it? And so we really want to get specific when we think about using probiotics as supplements. And when I say getting specific, I mean making sure that we're taking a probiotic for the right reason, at the right dose, and for the right length of time. And so probiotics have research to show benefit for very specific reasons. The probiotic strain that helps me pre prevent traveler's diarrhea may not be the probiotic strain I want to take uh, during and after antibiotics or for IBS or for IBD. Each strain can have a different benefit and so we want to make sure that we're taking the right one. The biggest question I get is, should I take a probiotic supplement for gut health? And I think what's important to recognize is probiotics are kind of like tourists. You consume them, they come into your gut and they do a job and then they leave. They don't colonize your gut. They don't take up a, a niche space in your gut. They're really there to do a job and go. And so when it comes to digestive health, there isn't a lot of good evidence that taking a probiotic supplement actually influences, um, influences our quote unquote gut health. Uh, so that can be really disappointing for people to hear. But I, I like to say the caveat is, is we can still introduce microbes, but maybe we don't need to take $50 of a supplement a month. Rather, what we can do is introduce microbes by way of food. And so this is where the discussion around fermented foods come up, comes up. And so fermented foods are made with microbes and break down uh, the food and provide taste and texture changes uh, that we all so desire and enjoy. Uh, sometimes they have live microbes in them and sometimes through uh, the production process, those microbes die off. And so when we choose fermented foods that have live microbes, we're introducing microbes to the gut. Uh, they may have benefit, we're still trying to work that out. Uh, and they come in, they're transient, and then they make their way out of the gut. And so to me, that's a lot more of a practical way to include variety and microbes in your diet without taking an expensive supplement that may not have long-term benefit on our health. Right. So glad you said that. I like to think of them like placeholders with short-term benefits. So kind of like a fertilizer, they sprinkle in little benefits, but those benefits don't technically stay there. So you've got to stay on top of the other changes that you can make, the fiber in your diet, the prebiotics, because they're not going to just colonize your gut and stay there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's more important you take care of the trillions of microbes you have rather than add in these microbes uh, from probiotic supplements. So what's your and favorite probiotic? I have a favorite. Do you? It depends. Um, typically in IBS specifically, I use uh, Lactobacillus planetarum, the 299, a lot. So in Canada, there's a few different brands that uh, 
have that particular strain. Uh, and I find a lot of patients report that it helps them with uh, the symptoms of bloating and pain. So that's why I quite like it. Uh, what's your favorite strain? Saccharomyces boulardii. Um, oh, I absolutely love it. Found within floor so store. Yeah, mm-hmm. because then we're looking at antibiotic associated diarrhea. We're looking at fighting off C. diff and H. pylori, even preventing traveler's diarrhea. So big, big fan. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that one as well. Uh, yeast-based probiotics are so interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more research come out on those because I think there's a lot we don't know about uh, the fungal part of our microbiome and the influence it can have. And so what I love when you brought up Saccharomyces boulardii is that's a yeast, guys. And so introducing yeast to your gut isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, there's lots of evidence for example, with certain strains of Saccharomyces boulardii that it has a lot of benefit. And so a lot of people are terrified of, of yeast right now because of candida, uh, but yeast-based probiotics can definitely have a lot of benefit and don't necessarily put you at risk of any harm. So glad you said that. So you guys, just to recap, probiotics, they have their benefits, but you want to use strain-specific ones and don't just, you know, blindly throw them in because sometimes when you throw in a probiotic and you don't need it it's like throwing fire on a like a fire flu but on a fire you don't want to do that so please work with a dietitian make sure you are taking the one that you need specifically that's such a good point especially in SIBO or IBS patients will be like loading up on the probiotics and fermented foods and wonder why they feel so horrible I'm like please stop save your money save your gut Uh, This might not be helpful in your particular case. Exactly. Okay, so really important thing I want to talk about now. Food intolerances and food intolerance testing. I want you to bust these myths. Yep. So food intolerances. uh, I think it's really important first to understand the difference between a sensitivity and an intolerance. And so I'm quoting work out of McMaster University here in Canada that is looking to define the difference between food allergy, food sensitivity, and food intolerance. Allergies are those IgE-mediated allergies. Typically, when we think of them, we think of anaphylaxis to things like peanuts and bees. Uh, So most of us are familiar with those. And what happens is with those is uh, we're exposed to a protein in food that mounts an inappropriate immune response and an over response that can lead to things like throat swelling, hives, rash, diarrhea, and anaphylaxis in some people. And that's something you'd need an EpiPen for. Where it gets gray for people is the difference between a sensitivity and an intolerance. So food sensitivities involve the immune system, but by way of different pathways to IgE-mediated allergies. An example of a food sensitivity, while also qualified as a uh, autoimmune disorder, is celiac disease. So your immune system is involved in the reaction to a particular food protein, gluten. Uh, Whereas food intolerances are entirely different and don't appear to at this point, although there's some interesting research that's just come out uh, to this point, uh, don't typically involve our immune system. And so food intolerances uh, tend to affect 
uh, how we digest things. And so examples of that, the perfect example would be lactose intolerance. And so in lactose intolerance in milk, there's a two chain carbohydrate, and your intestines are responsible for producing the enzyme to break that down. A lot of patients actually lose that enzymatic capacity over the course of their lives and end up not being able to break down that carbohydrate, which then pulls water into the gut and ferments rapidly in the colon, leading to gas and diarrhea. We all you know, have that family member that's lactose intolerant. Other types of food intolerances include things like FODMAPs. So uh, in irritable bowel syndrome, fermentable carbohydrates uh, don't affect our immune system, but can affect how we digest things by way of pulling water into the bowels, by not being properly digested and absorbed, and by causing digestive distress, either by uh, creating bloating and gas or changing our bowel habits. So the big question I get is, I just want to test to figure out what my food intolerances are. Isn't there an easier way than doing an elimination and reintroduction diet? And for most food intolerances, although there are a few, uh, for most food intolerances, there is no validated testing because it doesn't necessarily involve the immune system. There is for fructose intolerance, there is for lactose intolerance, uh, where we can do a test, for example, measuring um, how much our blood sugars go up when we consume lactose. Uh, but for the most part, most of these tests, uh, or most of these intolerances don't have tests. There's a lot of tests on the market that try to tell you that we can diagnose food intolerance by way of measuring a wide variety of different things, whether that's doing a breathing test or uh, getting a, a finger prick test to measure immune response, but food intolerances by their definition don't involve the immune system, therefore are not accurate. So glad you mentioned that because so many people will go and they'll run to the IgG based food intolerance testing and you guys that IgG is really lacking the evidence to prove the accuracy of a food intolerance. So with those IgG antibodies, when you eat a certain food, your body naturally increases the presence of IgG antibodies to that food. So the more that you eat that food, say it's eggs, the more that you eat the eggs, the more antibodies you can produce. And then you take that test and it shows up high and you're like, oh my God, I can't eat eggs. Well, no, it's because you eat the eggs all the time. So I do not like using those tests specifically like the, the I think it's the Everlywell and the Pinner test. Please don't use those. Work with a health professional who can help you with the gold standard for food intolerances, which is an elimination diet with reintroduction done with supervision. I think that's so important to highlight. And where I see the big gap is, is patients are like, well, I did the test and it came up with all these foods and then I cut them out and felt better. And so the challenge with this is, is I totally get that your personal experience has um, been positive with that. But what we need to recognize as scientists is, was it because of this food intolerance test that you felt better? Or was it because the intervention matched some scientifically based interventions we have? 
So the foods that are going to test high on these uh, particular tests are foods that are really antigenic. So these are foods that inherently uh, just cause our body to naturally produce more IgG, uh, like milk, like eggs, like wheat, like soy. So those more um, uh, antigenicity type foods will inherently produce more IgG. We cut those foods out. Uh, you get better because a lot of times those foods are inherently high in FODMAPs or potentially high in lactose if we're looking at milk. Uh, and then we also see people tend to clean up their diet when they have a really strict regimen to follow. So is it diet quality that really actually was what influenced your gut? And maybe we don't need to be so worried and restrictive of those foods. So a lot of times people end up on an unnecessarily restrictive diet for a long period of time and they may feel better, but do they really need to be following that diet? Does it need to be so strict? Could we have narrowed it down to one or two foods instead of like 15 foods that may cause their symptoms? Very likely so if we had done it in an evidence-based way. Absolutely love that. All about the evidence-based way. And not that I'm <clears throat> like diminishing people's experiences, but I want people to understand that we need to focus on a combination of observational and experimental data when we're looking at science. Absolutely, and I think uh, recognizing that, you know, it's so good when people get resu results regardless of how they got there, but a lot of times these tests offer financial benefit to the people that prescribe them and maybe aren't even needed to be done because we have all this data to say, this is the type of diet that would help for this diagnosis. So it saves you money uh, and it potentially also takes out that conflict of interest when somebody profits off of prescribing you a particular test. So I wanna hear from you. Where can people find you and follow you? Because you are incredible. Thank you. Uh, they can follow me the most popular place uh, where I spend probably too much time, Lacey, is on Instagram at Andrea Hardy RD. And I also run a digestive health podcast called Let's Gut Real. And you can find that on any podcast provider, wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Those are the two best places to find me. Absolutely love it. And I just want to thank you so much for all your time today. You're just a true gem and it is so, I guys, I love following her because she will just debunk myths and she does not care. She just, you are like me. You just say what you want to say and you go with it. So thank you for that. Thank you for being a voice for others and for science and for reason. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. Well, thank you so much again for your time. I just want to hear one thing. This is a random question. Um, I want to hear what would be the one dietary change that you would say would help anybody maximize their health? Yeah, it's so simple, but I think where people fall shortest is with their vegetable intake. And so really aiming for one and a half to two cups of veg at lunch and supper every day. And if you're like, Oh, I don't eat any veggies at lunch. I'll only get a cup at supper. Maybe start small 
and maybe just add in half of a cup at lunch. Maybe it's a handful of carrots or some cucumbers. Uh, maybe it's some roasted veg left over from supper. Just start with those small changes and really work to get those veggies out because they're the ones that are packed with fiber, phytochemicals, micronutrients, all those things Lacey and I just focused on. I love it. I'm saying variety, you guys. Variety is king. So thank you yeah. so much again for taking your time to come on my podcast. You guys, if you like this podcast, leave me a review, please. And thank you. That's what helps this podcast grow. And as you know, I am launching a book, the women's guide to hormonal harmony. And I need your help. I need to get this book into as many hands as, as many people as possible. So please review this podcast, share it, tag me on Instagram at faith and fit, please, please. Love you guys. Hope you enjoyed this podcast and hope you guys have a great rest of your day.